Hey everyone, this is Gary Kay. Thanks for joining me for my Rants and Rays video cast today. And uh, I have a special guest with me, uh, Pete Putman. And we actually go back together over 30 years in this industry, uh, but he's been in the industry longer than me. And he sent this really nice, uh, as always with you, Pete, really well-written, well-thought-out email announcing your retirement. Uh, first off, congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. There's a longer version of that on LinkedIn. I posted as an article. Okay, I'll I'll link to that as well uh, in yeah. the in the description of this video cast so people can read it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think everyone in the display segment of the AV industry absolutely knows who Pete is. Pete was uh, he was one of the probably biggest reasons why uh, projector manufacturers, uh, and I don't think this is uh, an exaggeration at all. I th I think it's what you're one of the biggest reasons that projector manufacturers sort of accelerated their development in technology, especially in the, the 90s and early 2000s, because you were, uh, you were instrumental in writing about everything going on in display and everyone cared about what you thought about display. And I think companies really, uh, really listened to what you had to say. Don't you think that's the case? Well, um, timing is everything, as I've heard on more than one occasion. And I think I got lucky. Um, I really got involved in that part of the industry just as it was taking off in the mid 90s um, as the first, you know, we, we joke about them now, bright 500 lumen LCD projectors were coming <laughs> to market. They're basically yeah. spotlights. They had terrible uniformity. But um, yeah, I did start writing a lot about it. There weren't a lot of people that were covering it. I found it fascinating because I had been active in the staging industry for quite a while before that. And, and previously, the projectors we used were big Heavy things took several people to move, took forever to converge. And here was something that you could flip on like a light switch and zoom a lens and focus it and you were done. So uh, I thought the uh, readers should know more about it, how it works, how to uh, evaluate the performance of them and constantly cajoling the manufacturers to make a better product to, to improve the overall picture quality, which of course today is light years improved over those, those early flashlights from, from back in 1995. It, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? Let's let's start at the beginning of your career because your career is amazing to me. Um, how did you? I mean, none of us in the, in, uh, intentionally got into this industry. How did you fall into this industry? Where did where did it start? Well, let's go all the way back to when I was um, about five, and my father built a Heathkit crystal radio, and I quote unquote helped him by staying out of the way, but he hooked that thing up to a long antenna. I put headphones on and bingo, I was listening to radio stations. So that got hooked. That really got me hooked on electronics. And as I went into um, high school, I started playing around with uh, uh, transmitters, receivers, started building things, got a soldering iron out. So by the time I was graduating high school, I had two pirate radio stations on the air. Uh, and then I got a ham license uh, the year before I graduated high school, and that was 51 years ago. I got a amateur radio license. I've had it ever since. And for the, give you an idea of how that came in handy, the classes I taught at Infocom on RF and wireless technology, uh, that's where my knowledge base came from, was uh, years and years of working with ham radio. So what does that have to do with displays? It really has nothing to do with it, except that they both use photons. When you send a radio signal from an antenna, it's photons. And when you're looking at something from a display, it's photons. So... Um, I got a master's degree at Syracuse, 
graduated Syracuse, uh, was looking for work, had two options. One was to become a relief videotape operator uh, for ABC uh, through a friend of mine who was a ham radio operator and also director of 2020 and several other ABC news programs. Uh -huh. Pardon my trash collector out there. Um, or uh, I was offered a position with a small audiovisual production company that I'd never heard of, not far from where I lived. And I said, sure, what do you want me to do? And they said, be the production manager. Well, you don't hire somebody off the street to be a production manager. That's a, a very important job, but that was you know, a high turnover job. So in the course of working for this company for several years, uh, or for a year actually, because of the high turnover, I wound up being not only the production manager, I learned how to work on a what's called a Forox animation stand, shooting 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter animation, program multi-image slideshows, um, ran a recording studio, even made skating records for people that went skating, had to have a record back then, uh, did still photography, film editing, and then uh, I left there, went to work for a year at American Express in New York City as an audiovisual technician, felt underappreciated, underpaid, and quit. <laughs> on my hands for a few weeks. First phone call I got was American Express saying, you helped redesign the AV gear in the boardroom. Nobody knows how to make it work. Could you come back in here as a freelancer and help us run it? And that's when I started my company. That was January of 1980. So um, that is 44 years that I've been working in this industry. And and I'm going to go back to what you said. You had two pirate radios. First off, how, first off, how, it seems to me to be hard to run one radio station, but to have two pirate radio stations running at the same time, does that mean that you were like recording music and playing it illegally? Or what does that mean by pirate radio station? Or just Well, yeah, it's basically it was an illegal operation. And um, I we my friends and I were both into electronics and we built a uh, very high powered transmitter. I lived in a fairly tall house in the town I grew up in ran a long antenna from that and would broadcast uh, just above the AM band at 1610. And my friends in high school would tune in on the weekends and I would be a DJ. We'd salvage turntables of people throughout during junk week and all kinds of stuff. We even patched the phone in. I was having a lot of fun with that, not doing very well in high school and with my grades, but um, learning a ton of stuff about electronics. And then um, I felt that the FCC was probably closing in on me, even though my best efforts were <laughs> to disclose my location or phone numbers, which is what amateurs do they give an information out so i got a ham radio license in may of 1970 which was easy to pass because i already understood all the theory so i've had that license as i said before for 51 years and uh, that began a, a like continued a lifelong fascination with electronics of all kinds started my own company in 1980 a company called image dynamics i was doing primarily slide graphics the old-fashioned way typesetting photostats putting them on an animation stand doing uh, type slides, pie charts, special effects. I still have albums full of that stuff. I should probably post that on LinkedIn. It's all you should. Same sort of thing that they were doing with Star Wars and all that. I was doing it on these animation stands. And I got into staging, and that's probably where uh, things really got intense because some of my clients said, um, we're having a, a business meeting in this hotel. Can you run the stuff for us? I said, sure. So I started doing staging. And that lasted about um, actually 17 years um, that I staged meetings in, um, oh boy, all over the place, Bermuda, Quebec City, Alaska, Hawaii, Mexico, all over the U.S., um, multi-image shows. We'd have as many as 30 projectors going on wide screens. We'd blend video in with it. Um, it's what I'd like to call a seconds, minutes, hours business. Everything is seconds, minutes, hours, seconds, minutes, hours. So the minute you solve one crisis, there's another crisis. And in fact... The last year I staged a meeting, I was staging one at Disney World in 1995 for a pharmaceutical company, and um, true story. 
I was in my hotel room trying to solve a problem with a teleprompter. And my, uh, my ex-wife called and said she wanted a divorce. I said, I can't talk to you right now. I got 10 minutes to solve a teleprompter issue. <laughs> so, Whoa. Yeah, that didn't Whoa. go over very well. Um, <laughs> And I thought, you know what? I, it's time for me to get out. It's uh, this is this consuming too much of my life. I mean, I've had some wonderful experiences, learned a lot on the job, and that was about the time I really got involved with Infocom and the projection shootout, which you were running at the time, and displays because I'd learned so much about how they worked and the physics and the geometry of it. I didn't do well in either one of those things in high school, but I understand them perfectly by the mid '90s because I saw them work. I'm an experiential learner. Yeah, I have to build it and try it to know that it works. Yeah. So that's really what got me started in the whole display thing. And again, it was just it was a very lucky timing because that's when the display industry was really taking off was in the mid 90s. Right. Yeah. And uh, that I think 90, if you said 95, that was the third year I was running the shootout or maybe fourth year I was running the shootout. And by then, as you said, I remember the first LCD. I, I'm You probably better remember it better than me. But wasn't it Ike was the first company that had the first Ike uh, or, spotlight Ike projector? Sanyo. Yeah, actually, yeah, my yeah, yeah. first time I saw the shootout was in 94. Uh -huh. Oh, and, and I should add that in uh, at the time when I was doing the multi-image stuff, I was very active with a group called the Association for Multi-Image. They're long gone now. Um, but I would write articles for free for their publication. And I also got some of the other publications. One was AV Video. Uh -huh. and I read an article in there that was so riddled with technical errors that I called the editor and I said, how can you publish something like this? First of all, you've identified a three-track audio recorder as a four-track recorder. You've mixed up the names of these manufacturers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a guy named Sam Stalos. You might remember him. He was I do. Yeah. quite a crazy guy. Yeah. And he basically said to me, oh, you're so smart. Why don't you write me an article? So I hung the <laughs> phone up. This is back in the days of fax machines. I had written a long article for the Association for Multi-Image. And I thought, you know what? I might as well get paid for this. So the minute I hung up, I faxed it to him. An hour later, he called back. He says, wow, you are fast. He says, how'd you like to come on staff as a regular writer? That was in 1987. So that started my writing career. So to bring it up to speed, in 1994, my editor at AV Video, a guy named Larry Henschey, said, Pete, I want you to go to Anaheim, the Infocom uh, show, and I want you to review the projection shootout. I said, well, what is that? He goes, oh, this big thing where they set up all these displays and they compete against each other to see who has the best display. And all. I mean, he really didn't understand what it was. Yeah. And I said, well, sure, why not? If you're going to pay, send me out there and all that, I'll go. And I did. And I went to the projection shootout. And I think the minute I walked in the room, I said, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Oh, my God, I must have been crazy to say yes to this. I I believe I spent over the period of, I think Infocom was either three or two and a half days then. And I must have spent a good 12 hours walking through that room. That was about all I did. I mean, I met some people from Infocom and I met you and I met a, you know the folks from Extron and everything. And I'm taking notes and I'm going back and looking and say, you have to be out of your mind to think that you can review this. But I did. I did a review of it. He loved it. My editor loved it. And he said, I'm going to do this every year. And I went, oh, boy, what did I get myself into? And that was in that was in 1994. And and you're really the first company to review it uh, extensively. Like uh, there were a few other people that would write about it and say, you know, so and so did well. So and so and company X did well. Company Y did bad. Mm -hmm. And you didn't take that approach. You took that approach to, to analyze each one rather than just just declare a winner and a loser. Uh, right. Was... Well, what I did was I basically said, all right, what what am I looking for here? I'm looking for certain performance parameters. And I made up a little spreadsheet and I picked, I think, 10 or 12 things and I gave each one a score. Right. Just like they do for ice skating, you know, technical yeah. and artistic merit and all that. 
and that's what I was doing. Um, so, so if you recall, those were long articles and they had yeah. lots of tables in them. We had to reproduce the entire, I mean, but the funny thing was that you might think who would want to run that in a magazine? You'd be astounded how many ads the magazine sold against that review every oh, year. Oh, sure. And they, yeah. and the publisher said, oh, he's got to do this every year. That's just so much top line advertising revenue. Because remember at the time, a lot of the books that were doing this, especially the ones that focused on video, they were paying no attention to this to this market segment. Right. And even when I would start, when I left AV Video to go to Video Systems, which was 96, 97, um, the publisher's like, why do we want to run this stuff in a video magazine? Nobody cares about it. And a year later, the magazine had doubled in size with all the ad pages. And he's like, hey, Pete, keep up the good work. <laughs> yeah. So I created a monster and it kind of got out of control. Yeah, it was a big deal. I mean, uh, you became the person that everybody waited to see what you were going to say about the shootout every year. And it put a lot of pressure on the manufacturers. And I think that by you evaluating them, um, created a situation where they were much more competitive in the way they were setting it up and much more uh, intentional in making sure that, uh, that they focused on those parameters that you had set each year to evaluate them. Which Did you ever cool. get any... That was good Go for ahead. the industry and it was good for the end users. Yes, because the yeah. quality got better. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I said. I mean, I think you are single handedly the driver for that for at least a decade or more. Where well, did you ever get it? There's a funny story about that. Okay, good. As the shootouts as the shootouts wound on, I began to realize that most of the projector engines and the L C D projectors were coming from one company. Yeah. And most of the projector engines and the DLP projectors were coming from one company. And I started to see very little difference from one model to another. So one year when I wrote the review, I said, I'm not sure that there's a point in continuing this much longer because frankly, in one particular section, let's say XGA projectors at a certain brightness level, you could pretty much buy any one of them and the performance is going to be essentially the same. Right. So maybe it's time to wind this down. Well, that did not go over very well with a certain individual at Infocom who actually threatened legal action against me. A lot of people don't yeah. know this. And... Um, so at the time I was writing for Intertech, Intertech was a big company with lawyers in New York and all that. And they promptly wrote back and said, yeah, go ahead and sue him if you want. He's a writer exercising his first amendment rights and we'll drag you into court and that'll be the end of it. And that was, that was it. It didn't go any further than that. But just to show you how much that thing got into the consciousness of the AV industry at the time. And I didn't think it would ever go that far. And it was also a driver for attendance. I mean, uh, the shootout was probably the reason that more than half the people regularly attended every year. And sure. it was the big, big event for the manufacturers. And they invested a lot of money. I mean, the show, the, the show company, Infocom at the time, made hundreds of thousands to up, upwards in millions of dollars in the later years of it. And yeah. uh, when you wrote that article, it only lasted two more years. Uh, yeah. And it was very controversial. And, and I think what happened was, me, Steve Summers, and some of the others got together at that time and said, well, the only thing we can do to differentiate them now is to uh, throw different, tougher content at them. And if you remember, we produced these discs yep. uh, where, where people could use that. And we so we started to, instead of uh, presenting the shootout with just pretty images and, and uh, content, we started pushing the limits with test patterns because then the differentiator was video uh, processing more than the than the imager itself. And I think but that only lasted a few years. And, uh, right. Think... Well, what happened was the manufacturers were getting wise to the same thing. Right. And they would say, and some of them would confide in me privately and say, look, we're thinking of pulling out because it, it's a tremendous expense and commitment of people and time on top of what we have to do to build a trade show booth right. to participate in this thing. And we just don't, we don't see the value in it anymore. We don't see the return. So one by one, 
you know, a few key players dropped out. And as soon as that happened, then the dam broke yeah. and everybody's like, well, then there's no reason for me to be here. And as you know, then a few years later, it was, it was gone. It was, um, it was fun I, while it lasted. Oh, it was great. I mean, it's 12 years. Uh, do you, I was going to ask you if you received any hate mail, but I didn't expect to have that uh, be your example. That was the greatest one of all. But it, what about manufacturers? Because, you know, what's interesting at that time, I remember one year where Christie did really bad. You pointed out they did really bad and they had a terrible year that year. They, they literally a lot of a lot of a lot of big customers would make their decisions based on the shootout, because the thought was, if you have three days to set up a projector and you still can't make it look better than the one sitting right next to you then you got a problem with the technology. And I remember one year, Christie did really bad. You pointed out they did really bad and uh, they had a terrible year. I mean, I remember they started laying off people and, and they just, you know, technologically they had some problems, but did you ever get any threats like that from manufacturers or was it the not converse? One. It seems like a lot of them came to you and said, Hey, help us make this look better. No, not a one. Well, that, and that did happen. Yes. Some consulting work came out of it. I would say that the bulk of the, of the correspondence that I received from manufacturers was, why did we get a score like this? Mm. And I would explain it to them. And then somebody would say, well, we're not sure. We're not sure that we believe your numbers. I said, well, I can, I'll be happy to share my methodology with you and you, you're free to go ahead and set up everything exactly the way I did it and run a side by side and see if your results vary. And not a one of them did. They just yeah, said, they, no, they let just it challenged go. you, but didn't do anything. Yeah, exactly. No. And, and in fact, many of them said, thanks for pointing that out. That was not something that we were paying attention to, or we had no idea that was so important. So we're going to fix that in the next iteration. When you think about it, kind of like some free R and D that was being done for them or some free uh, right. product testing. Exactly. So uh, of all the years you did the shootout of all the, all the um, products you reviewed, which one was your favorite? Do you, do you have one that you just looked at it one day and said, man, this is perfection? Oh, boy, it would be it, it would be impossible to remember. I mean, the last shootout was what, like 2000 or something. That's 20 yeah. years ago. I, I can't say, you know, I would see one that I really liked. And the next year I'd see something better, which is, of course, the nature of the display industry just that it kept getting better and better and better. So, no, I, I, I really can't uh, single out any one product because, again, it's two decades ago and I'd have yeah. to go back and. And by the way, I still have all my shootout guides going all the way back to 1994. Wow. Yeah, still have a lot of I did a lot of writing and editing of those. <laughs> I'm sure you can find plenty of mistakes in them, though. <laughs> no, well, I mean, the thing was that occasionally I would write a retrospective article for one of my magazines and I would say, gee, what was a, a, a high quality projector back then? And I would go back and I would see this hundred thousand dollar light valve projector that put out a whopping 2000 lumens. And I would say, now you can buy a 2000 lumen projector for 500 bucks. That's got yeah, a resolution. And I, and I, and I'd still, I would scratch my head saying the, the speed at which things change in this industry, just absolutely. It's mind boggling. I, I do want to mention though, while we're doing this, I don't know how much time we have, but you, I did mention this in my article. And well, there will be a longer version, sort of a career retrospective in the future in sound and communications, which I'd be happy to share with everybody. And I got a chance to thank all the people that sort of propelled my career along. But I don't know if you remember this, but you were instrumental in getting me involved in teaching at Infocom, which is something in high school. One of the three things I swore I would never do, A, I'd never have a job where I had to wear a suit and a tie. B, I would never work in a fast food restaurant. And C, I'd never be a teacher. <laughs> Well, I did have a job where I had to wear a suit and tie for a year, and I did become a teacher. So one out of three is not bad. But back around 96 or 97, I was already doing talks on behalf of some manufacturers, but you invited me to sit in on a panel discussion mm -hmm. on all day thing on 
the advances in display technology. And after that went down, I was approached by whoever was running education then saying, would you consider teaching courses here at the show? And I said, yeah, I have no idea what you want, but if you'd like me to, I can. And I think if you might remember back then, Infocom, at least the one year that I know of, ended on a Saturday, mm-hmm. which as a sidebar was a yeah. constant irritation to my daughter because that Saturday was always when her dance recitals were and I never made it to any of them. So I started teaching. So I taught from 97, 98 or something like that till 2019, over 20 years because of you. It's your fault. Um, <laughs> and uh, got involved with future trends, uh, taught classes all over the place, display tech, 4K, video compression, all that. Um, and then I wound up being adjunct faculty, you know, the regular faculty, senior faculty, academy faculty. I don't even know where I am now in the pantheon of retired faculty, but <laughs> Yeah, so there you go. It's uh, it's you made me a teacher, something I swore I would never do. <laughs> you and, and I, I both had it. the same. I, I enjoyed it. I did a lot of these Mr. Wizard demos because, again, yeah. I'm an experiential yeah. myself. So if I wouldn't just talk about it, I would set up these elaborate demos and demonstrate it, which guys like Bill Thomas and Stuart Weiser are like, oh, boy, what's he going to do this year? You know, they were both yeah. like dreading it and looking forward to it. Yeah, you and I both have the same history with regard to not having good grades, but end up being teachers. How does that actually happen? <laughs> well, you know, what's funny, I understand physics much better now than I did in high school. I understand yeah. geometry much better now than I do in high school. Yeah. And I found that over the years, because this is not something I've told a lot of people, but it's certainly not a secret. I actually flunked out of engineering school. Actually, they asked me to leave because I spent a year and a half there, but I was busy running a pirate radio station, building model rockets and basically goofing off. So <laughs> I, got, I got escorted to the door Went up going back to school at um, Seton Hall, graduated with top honors, got into six graduate schools, went to Syracuse, taught classes like, you know, taught classes. I was a graduate teaching assistantship mm-hmm. in television and film. And um, that's where I got my master's. So, so much for, you know, I was on the wrong track. That's really all it was. But as far as, um, uh, you know, I, I was always soldering wires together and building things. Sometimes I'd plug them in and they'd blow up with a shower of sparks. And sometimes they would work. And when they worked, I went, aha, I learned something. Now I know how to make it work. So when I would teach a class, I wouldn't just explain to them how something worked. I'd actually hook it up and walk them through the stages or I'd even have the class participate. And I thought if experiential learning works that well for me, it's got to work well for other people. And I'm really gratified by the responses I've gotten from my LinkedIn post from people saying, you inspired me to get my CTS. One guy said I was blown away by what I learned in your classes. And I said, it's a good thing you weren't blown up by what you learned in my classes. Because <laughs> some of my demos did not go very well. Um, but yeah, it's and the other thing that was interesting about it was I, I found I actually liked it. I, I was not afraid to walk into a room of 600 people that future trends get up on the stage with a spotlight on me and just sort of command the stage. I got better at it. And the first year I did it, I was terrified. But by the end, it was like, that's no big deal. You know, just just talk to him like you're talking to one person in the room and pause, pace yourself, make your points. And the most important thing, start on time and end on time. <laughs> yeah, that is it. Yeah, because people people remember that and uh, yep, they'll actually they stay, they'll stay yep. the time that that they are allotted to stay. So exactly. Talk, talk, you and, and, and if you might remember, or maybe you don't remember, but in 2008, the year that I won Infocom Educator of the Year Award, which was highly, it was a very surprising award. It was, I was gratified to be respected. I actually taught I think four classes, one was Future Trends, and there were three other classes, with a lingual hernia. I did not know it at the time, but I was having constant abdominal pain, 
And a couple of people said to me, oh, it's just diverticulitis. And everybody gets that. So I got home. This, that was a miserably hot year in Vegas. It was like over 100 degrees around the clock. I got home. I went to see a doctor. He sent me to a surgeon. He says, you need immediate emergency surgery. Wow. So I did. I had surgery, came home. He said, um, you were this close to might even be getting killed. He's not. He wasn't joking. He said, you had such a nasty lingual hernia. I stitch everything up. He said, if that got cut off, that would have been the end of you. So wow. um, I went back and I said at Petsy the next year, well, to get the Educator of the Year award, you have to have a life-threatening illness <laughs> and at the same time. You, you risk your life for Infocom. <laughs> yes, that was a that was a very very interesting that, Infocom. That'll make the good. That'll make a good headline for this yeah. uh, interview. Um, well, so, so yeah, when I would say this job is killing me, well, it literally. <laughs> so you mentioned your daughter, and I had the same situation because. You know, as you know, Infocom falls also on graduation weekend yeah. for high schools as well. So I have exactly the same scenario you did. Your daughter, obviously, probably for the same reasons mine, didn't get in the industry. So uh, did no, you no. Try to... and, and in fact, I just had my first grandchild. Congratulations. She, she was born two days before Father's Day. She goes, Dad, I was trying so hard <laughs> to have the baby on Father's Day just to remind you of all those dance recitals that you missed back in the day. <laughs> Yeah, you know, she was good natured about it. But um, did you try to get her in the industry? Did you try to get her interested in our industry? No, or? but my son, who lives in um, Los Angeles, he is a agent for a talent agency called Verve. He's a director of finance. His job basically is raising money for um, independent film production. He also got a degree, a graduate degree in um, film from Southern Cal. Okay. And he did go into the industry and he was an independent producer for 10 years. Now he works for an agency. So he took the path, the career path that I did not way, way back in 1977. So it's it, kind of fun how that worked out. Yeah. Um, and great. the other thing that inspired him was you might remember for about a 10 year period when high definition TV was just getting off the ground. I thought, you know, it'd be fun for me to set up a couple of high definition screens in my house and put the Super Bowl on so people can watch it. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, nobody knew anything about it. Yeah. My experience in RF, I already had antennas on the roof to pick up the signal. So we started these parties and they got totally out of control. So by the last year, and we were filling the house up with displays. And all these manufacturers that knew me from the projection shootout would, would call me and say, Pete, are you having your party? Yes, because it would get right up in the national news media and on television. Can we send you the latest this or the latest 3D display or projector? I said, sure. So we built theaters. I had a home theater in the basement. We built a second one. It got to the point we were projecting from the second floor onto the snow outside. We were projecting through <laughs> windows. We had uh, 3D set up. We were doing all kinds of weird things. We had pocket projectors. We had one in the bathroom. The women said, you'll never get the men out of there. Um, <laughs> so the last year we did it, we had 10 screens all through the house, the first floor basement outside for the smokers, um, or just as a joke. And then um, we had 70 people in the house. And then, wow. and we, my wife every year would cook a meal based on the two teams playing. She would cook two different kinds of meals that we would have. We would have raffles to raise money for nonprofits. I mean, it was hysterical what we did. Uh, and some of the technology that went through one year, I think it was like five degrees outside. And Sanyo sent me a weatherproof LCD screen. And I said to him, guys, guess what? It works at five degrees. <laughs> because <laughs> it out. We had it out in the front yard. Um, so yeah, news coverage on ABC, NBC, Fox. CBS, um, you know, the USA Today, Philadelphia Inquirer, New York Times, all these. And after 10 years, I thought, I can't do this anymore. This is like staging all over again. It took me two yeah, days to set up for it and two days to break it down. But yeah. it, it was fun. It really was. 
I, I, I'm going to guess, though, when they broadcast the first Super Bowl in 8K, I'm going to bet that your house is going to be the place to watch it. What do you think? I don't know. Um, the thing about the motivation really behind the retiring um, is that I've been at this a long time. I was working by myself for 40 years. There's not too many people that can say that. Yeah. Um, and it, it is tiring. It does take a lot out of you. Uh, the incessant trade show travel. This is no joke. Somebody once said to me at the HPA Trek retreat, tech retreat, how many times have you been to Las Vegas? It seems like you're always out there. I thought, all right, I saved every badge I've ever gotten at a trade show. You wouldn't want to see how big that box is. And I went through there and I went back and looked through my calendar and everything. I said, oh, my God, I've been out there over 365 days. I've spent a year of my life in Las Vegas. And wow. I was close to it at the time I did it. Like it was like 89, 90 trips that I'd made. I've made a few more since then. And I thought, this is crazy. This is like too much. <laughs> I don't want to have that on my tombstone that he spent a year in Las Vegas. Um, I mean, I've been out there for so long. Some of the hotels I went to have been blown up. Not necessarily because I stayed there, but I think there's a testament to you. I was running them down. I said, yeah, there's the Sahara. There's the Sands. Yeah, there's there's the old Flamingo, the, the, the old Aladdin. Right. You know, and all yeah. those I said they blew them up. And somebody said after you stayed there, I said, yeah, unfortunately, they did. Um, so there was that. And uh, the teaching was fun, but it was like a lot of teachers at some point, you're kind of burned out from doing it because, yeah, I mean, I would have to prep my classes. I would take a lot of time before the class. Then there's that adrenaline rush when you're teaching the class and you got to ship everything back. And I thought, I just want to kick back. I really want to just sit back and not do this anymore. Let somebody else do it. There are plenty of younger people in this industry that are really good at communicating and teaching. And, you know, it's time. Somebody once said, it's you have to know when to get off stage. And another one said, you always want to retire at the top of your game. I don't know if I'm at the top of my game anymore, but it's it's just time. It just feels like it's time. Now I have a grandchild. Um, my 50th high school reunion should have been this year. I'm dating myself now. It'll be next year. <laughs> My wife's is in two weeks. It's yeah, it's just time to kick back and do some other things in life that I have other interests I want to play around with. It doesn't mean I'll be gone entirely from the industry. Yeah. Uh, I suspect like most people I know who've retired, some have come back and done a little work here and there and everything, even like guys that retire from playing pro football and then they come back and play another year. But you won't see me writing regularly for any uh, media outlets or teaching or any of that stuff. So you, you might see me once in a while walking a trade show floor. Um, I don't know. I'm not going to predict what happened. I didn't predict any of this was going to happen. So I'm not going to make any predictions about the future because I haven't got a clue what's going to happen. Well, I, you know, on behalf of the industry, thanks for all that you did. On behalf of me personally, uh, I really appreciate you inspiring me to, to always do better, uh, especially in and around the shootout, because uh, I always knew that Pete was going to come in and evaluate not just the projectors, but also the work that we did. Uh, you always, you always dedicated a part of the article to what we did to set it up and the, and the, and the, and the presentation of it all. So I always appreciate that. Well, and I also, good I also recall back in the day, um, mm -hmm. you weren't quite sure what to do with your future. I think you had left AMX. Yeah. You were thinking of starting your own shop. And as I recall, we had a nice long conversation and I we said, don't, don't regret it. It's like that old saying, at some point in your life, a door will open. You won't expect it, but don't hesitate. Walk through the door. Well, that was your door. Look where you are now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, like I said, I appreciate it. I was going to say thanks for the advice that you gave me on that phone call. The other thing you told me on that phone call, I don't know if you remember that, but I was talking about uh, the name of my company, and you said, my, you said to me, your name is unique. You should use your name. 
uh, and uh, and I did end up doing that in the beginning of the of uh, of having my own company. Well, that advice actually that advice came from my father. My father was a cryogenic engineer. He was a chemical engineer specialized in the design of liquid oxygen liquid gas plants, very exotic field. And when my parents sold their company that did that, he continued on his own for almost 20 years as an independent consultant. And he was well known all around the world. He was one of the top guys in the field. And he once said to me, if you start a business up, you can make a product, but some guy down the street might be able to make it faster or cheaper. So you can't rely on that. You might be able to provide a service, but somebody else might be able to provide the service. You can't rely on that. What you have to rely on is your reputation. You have to build up your reputation and that will get you through life. So never diminish the value of your name, never diminish the value of your reputation and protect your reputation. My business has changed since 1980 five times. I've changed my focus five times, uh, the most, most recently in 1993. Um, but as you said, you know, apparently a, a lot of people know me. I, again, I'm flattered how many people have written me on LinkedIn <clears throat> you know, to say, hey, thanks and congratulations and all that. But yeah, your name is gold. You have to protect it and you have to use your reputation because that's what people come back to. You know, that, that's why they call you up. That's why they call me up. That's why they call any particular person up because yeah. they know you. It's a, it's a relationship thing. It's a friendship thing. It's a reputation thing. You're exactly right. hundred yeah. um, percent. And I've, uh, I think the industry really appreciates what you've done. And hopefully the industry has served you well as well uh, with, with all the success that you've had. And Well, I have. And, uh, uh, there's a couple of things that, a couple of little pearls of wisdom I'd like to pass on. Number one, um, I'm always learning. I, I, I understood when people would say, well, you're an expert in this area. And I kept saying to them, listen, the only difference between anybody and an expert is an expert is someone who knows how much they still have to learn about their field. You know, and so they're never stop. you know, so you never stop learning. Number one, number two, um, if you don't know it, go out and ask somebody, you know, there's always somebody that knows. There've been plenty of times where I didn't know something or I learned something on the job and, and it was like, wow, that's a revelation. And that was a springboard to further learning, which then turned out to be very useful. Mm-hmm. And the third thing I would say is that when I ran my classes, the main reason I taught the classes is, as you well know, if you just walk the show floor and all you run into is the marketing and salespeople, they'll often say whatever they have to say to make a sale. Right. And lots of times they don't even understand how their own technology works. Yeah. So when I would have the classes, I would say to everybody, I'm going to tell you how this new technology works or why it's different than this or why that is better than this or why this is really a waste of your time or whatever. I said, all I want you guys to do after you take my classes, when you go back on the show floor, I want you to ask better questions. That should be my motto in Latin. Ask better questions. Don't say, what is this or what does it do? Go in there and say, all right, give me an idea. When I code video using this format at this bit rate, what the quality is going to be as opposed to using this other codec. Mm-hmm. Well, right away, that changes the whole conversation. You know, immediately the sales and marketing people disappear and the engineers come out. But that's, <laughs> come when, you, but that, but that's when you get the truth. Yep. You know, that's, that's when you... Um, Look, somebody's calling you. <laughs> oh, I don't know what that is. Yeah, don't worry about that. Anyway, so that was really it. It was... Um, let's put that on the floor somewhere. Not that a problem. The, uh, yeah, I know. That's one of the Wi-Fi phones in the house. So again, your reputation is gold. Protect it. Work hard to build up a good reputation. Always be willing to learn. Never think like you know anything because there's always somebody out there that knows something more than you do. But but when I started out with displays, Gary, I branched out into a whole bunch of stuff, including video compression, AV over IT, went back into RF and wireless, which was my first love. And I think I know more about that than anything else. 
um, and a lot of other areas because I think it made me a better person, but it, it made me appreciate all these things work together. But what it, nothing more gratifying than to end a class, have 10 people come up and say, you know what? I never heard this explained before by anybody, or you did such a good job explaining it. Now I get it. And to give them my email and say, look, if you ever get stuck or you don't understand something or you're in the middle of a rack trying to wire something and you get caught, call me, email me, whatever, tell me and I'll get you through it. I'll explain it to you because I appreciated that so much when people did it for me. And it's really kind of a pass it on thing, you know, and, and I hope, I don't know what the future is going to be for Avixa. I know that we've largely switched away from individual non-product training, say generic training, more and more towards uh, uh, application-specific or product-specific training. But people should never give up the education angle, never stop learning, and always ask better questions. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I've always told people as well, if you're going to Infocom, make sure you're going to the classes or spend as much time in classes as you do on the show floor because I think too many people just go to the show floor. And like you said, you're not going to learn uh, from the show floor unless you're lucky to talk to the person that actually understands the technology. And for people that were lucky enough to take your classes and meet you, then they know exactly what we're talking about here. I got exactly. one last question. It got to the point. It got to the point at the end there where I would be teaching in a two and a half day show. Yeah. I would be teaching almost six to eight hours worth of classes and I'd never get on the show floor. Yeah. You couldn't. You know, so it's like, geez, I need to know, I need to know what's going on in the industry. <laughs> I forgot to add one other motto I have. And I learned this in the staging business from a guy when I was staging a meeting for Scott paper, he was a photographer and nothing seemed to phase him. No matter what the crisis was, he always had a smile and he got through it. He says, Pete, my motto in life is if you can't take a joke, don't be one. And I thought, that's brilliant. <laughs> that, that's my motto. If you can't take a joke, don't be one. So I would say to anybody watching, one of your greatest tools in your arsenal is to have a good sense of humor. When everything is falling apart, it's on fire, it's crashing and burning. Just turn to the guy next to you and said, well, I guess that didn't work. <laughs> we should try something else. Or as my, as my graphic artist was fond of saying, when something would go totally haywire and I'd be storming around, stomping my feet, complaining, I'd calm down and he'd say, and what have you learned? <laughs> And I just crack up. So a good sense of humor will carry you a long way. So I have one question for you. Are you going to sure. go back to start another radio station? I'm sorry, what? Are you going to crank up another radio station? Pirate radio oh, no, station? no, 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 no. I, I have an <laughs> amateur radio extra class license. That is the highest grade of license you can get. That was in many uh, hams eyes harder to get than a first class radio telephone license. I've had that since December of 81. I don't even, I'm not even that active on the air anymore. I have a, a couple of two-way radios like this. Um, it's an older hobby. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll admit that. Um, but I do occasionally fire, fire up the radios. To be honest with you, going forward, I will probably spend more time playing music. Um, you probably remember the Extron parties where we used to have the battles of the bands. Oh, yeah. I tinkered around with the piano since I was five, played the trombone all the way through grade in high school into college in a brass quintet and a guy named Steve Barlow and you know Steve Barlow yep. invited me one time to play with the what they called the all-star band at Infocom and it was in Orlando over at that upside down, upside down building Wonderworks yep. that was the year we had the thunderstorm and they chased us off the stage and I said were we that bad and they said no 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 no, no it's not. you're pretty good it's just the thunderstorm coming in and I thought you know what I really enjoyed that and I started playing more and more so now I've actually played in three bands I've played out publicly several times um, I'd be happy to share with you my YouTube channel. There's a bunch of music videos that I produced 
during the pandemic for my musician friends who were stuck at home with nothing to do. So um, after we sign off here, I'll send you the link to that. But uh, we did some music videos with up to as many as 12 different musicians and people love doing these things. It gave them a reason to rehearse and to play. And some of them would say, you know, I recorded my part 15 times before I got it right. So music is very much a part of my future. Um, I bought a Mazda Miata, uh, the, the fourth generation, uh, six years ago. I in a Miata club, do a lot of, of driving around in that. Um, I'm, I've always had a passion for old railroads, uh, railroad museums, railroad lines. Um, I worked on a project for the National Park Service. Steamtown National Historic Site has a movie in the Orientation Center. I'm in it and my son is in it at, at age eight. Wow. Um, you can go up there and see that. If they'll give me permission, I'll stick that online. So I'll continue to do that. And I am still an avid uh, collector of uh, Yankee baseball cards. So um, I have a pretty good size collection. I sold off most of it or a lot of it, but I still go to shows and pick up that, go to a Yankee game now and then. Um, so there's plenty to keep me busy. And of course I have a grandchild and uh, she's a doll, absolute sweetie. So I will, um, I'll keep myself busy. You know me, I'm always trying to conjure something up. Um, you know, the idle hands of the devil's workshop is the old saying. So <laughs> I'll put that work to, uh, one of the things, by the way, I'm, I'm sort of digressing here, but when I wrote my my story, I said, when I think back of all the hardware I bought over the years, that's all scrap metal now. It's like, I don't even want to think about it, how distressing it yeah. is, and how, how expensive that stuff was, yeah. and how it all got hauled off to 611 metals. It's like, <laughs> for nothing. Why? You know, because it's just, but it was all part of the learning process. You know, it was all yeah. all things that I, that I needed to do at the time. And uh, fortunately, I'm not a pack rat. Like some people I know that have warehouses full of this stuff and they can't bring themselves to get rid of it. And I said, guys, just take it to the scrap dealer and let them hand you a check. Do not turn around. Just walk away <laughs> and get rid of it. Because, um, you know, in, in the future, in our industry, I see more and more of it going to wireless. And I see a lot of the products that we're selling as AV products will eventually just be integrated into things like phones and laptops and all that. They'll just be built in there. It won't even be a separate product. Uh, for example, the the wireless comp wireless uh, sharing, presentation sharing. Yeah. That'll just be built in. I mean, look yeah. at Zoom. Look what Zoom did. Think back 20 years ago to uh, yeah, some of the amazing. teleconferencing systems and how expensive and time consuming they were. And now we have Zoom. You know, it's yeah. it's it's basically built into your computer. So um, that's the thing our industry really needs to keep an eye on as, as we migrate more towards what's going to eventually be a pure IT structure. There's no question that that's going to happen. A lot of the hardware and specialized tools and things that we saw are just going to go away because they're going to be built into these computing platforms. You know, you're not going to have to buy something and hook it up and hope it works. It'll just be there. And there'll be so much demand for Spectrum, which was a thing I emphasized a lot in my classes. We don't realize how much demand there'll be for Spectrum, a lot of which 30 years ago was useless. And now it's like gold. Yeah. But but we're going to need so much of it and so much bandwidth and everything. And everybody just takes that stuff for granted that it's going to work. And I hope that in the future, I don't know who will teach it, but I hope somebody continues to teach the classes on wireless and RF and Wi-Fi and wireless video, and wireless audio and point to point, you know, wireless display connections and all, because that stuff is vitally important. It really is. That's going to be the backbone of our industry going forward. Yep, you're exactly right. And it's kind of like an interesting cycle, right? I mean, it started with a uh, wireless radio and now it's turned back around where signals of all types are able to go wireless and we're close to getting power wireless. I mean, we now actually have the ability to charge our phones wirelessly. Yep. Uh, you're going to see a lot of other that, things like that. So that's a good way to, that's a good way to kind of wrap it all up. Uh, because, and don't forget the history of it. A lot of these things, yeah. there were people experimenting with wireless power back in the fifties. 
mm-hmm. broadcasting high intensity RF to a guy floating in like a one person helicopter. And that energy was then converted into, was rectified and turned into DC power to charge something. I mean, it worked for like five minutes, then I think he crashed. But <laughs> a lot of the things that you see nowadays that we take for granted were um, de rigueur back then. I mean, yeah. it's like people were spending tons of money to, in, to invent this stuff. Uh, and again, the projector business is a good example. Yeah. I, think, I think the first in-focus projector I tested was something like $8,000. Now nobody would even make a projector like that. And yeah. for three or four hundred dollars, you can buy a three thousand lumen projector that's wide XGA that mm. has Bluetooth and everything else built into it. And there's and 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 even the projector business itself, not that many people use projectors anymore. More and more people have just gone to big cheap flat screens. Mm-hmm. Well, who could have seen that? Co- well, I saw it coming, but who could have seen that coming? <laughs> I I said that at CES twenty years ago in a panel. I was very unpopular with the guys <laughs> at the instruments who were pushing rear projection TVs. I said. You realize, of course, the days of this product is numbered. Eventually, people are just going to buy cheap, big, cheap flat screens. And that's exactly what happened. But that yeah. that was part of my job, too, was to try to focus on the liquid crystal ball and say, where are we going? It isn't so important that what we're we doing now. Where is all this stuff going? That part, I'll probably never lose my love for it. So I'll keep subscribing to the news briefs. I'll keep subscribing to uh, you know, things like Display Daily. Uh, you know, the PR people will continue to flood my inbox with things. And once in a while, I might say, yeah, let me see that. But, you know, this one, you may know my prediction going forward is that ultimately all display technologies are going to be replaced by some form of light emitting diodes. All of them. Yeah. From your phone to your laptop, to your tablet, to the stadium's uh, signage, to your television, everything's going to be replaced by micro, mini, or regular, regular size LEDs. It's going to yeah. kill off liquid crystal, OLED, all the other stuff, it's gone. Except for some really exotic applications where you need to warp an image. And we're already seeing flexible, bendable LEDs anyway. So when will that happen? I'm going to say probably by the end of this decade, it's going to take a while, but there's no question that it's going to happen. You've got too many companies working on it and it's just, there's no downside to it. Yeah, yeah, I I, I tend to agree with you. Um, And you've got some great insight there. So, Pete, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, you're I hope everyone's really enjoyed this because you've you've really contributed a lot. And I'll link to your article in uh, LinkedIn so that people can see. Because uh, like one of the things you pointed out in that article was that you'd spent a year in Vegas. I thought that was interesting because uh, you have some interesting insights. Uh, having you know, what the funny thing is is that you're probably the only person on maybe one of the only people on earth that spent a year in Vegas and didn't win any money. <laughs> I did win something one year. I was coming back. I was coming back from, and it was at Infocom, oddly enough. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, I, I, it might've been Extron. Somebody was having a party. I think we were staying at the, at the, at the um, not the Bellagio, the Venetian. Mm-hmm. I was staying at the Venetian and I went across the street to either Treasure Island or Mirage. There was some party going on. And I came back at like two in the morning and I went by a bank of empty slot machines and I went in my pocket and there were two quarters in there. That's back when they still took coins. And yeah. I thought, you know what? Let me just throw them in there. So I put the two quarters in there and I hit the spin and all of a sudden, bing, 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 three things line up and coins start pouring out of the machine. And I'm, I'm watching, <laughs> I'm thinking, uh-oh, it's a mound of coins. Well, there were no cups. So I go to the next row, no cups. I go to another row, no cups. I'm like 50, 60 feet away before I find a cup. I come back, I fill it up. The coins are still coming out. I'm like, ah. So I run over, I find another cup. I come back, I come up with two cups of coins. I go over to the window, the cashier. There's nobody at the cashier's window. Like the <laughs> so I'm like hitting the bell and everything. Finally, somebody comes over and I said, what, what, how much is all this? 
I don't remember what it was. It was well north of a hundred bucks or something on a, on a, on a two quarter pull. Um, and so I thought that's it. I'm never putting money in a slot machine. <laughs> Cause I am never going to, never going to quit while you're ahead. You already gave us that advice. Quit your head. So. Now I will quit leave the... one thing. I'll leave one thing with your viewers here. Uh, as much as I detest Las Vegas and I, and I, Look, there's some good restaurants out there. I've had some good times out there. I've been out there when it snowed. I've been out there when they had a flash flood. I nearly got carried away in a flash flood cutting through the garage in Harris. But um, I might, I'm, I'm sort of on the fence. I might go to one more CES in January. It depends on how I feel at the time, number one. Number two, although Vegas right now has largely escaped this surge in the Delta variant, I don't know what's going to happen in January. Yeah. But if the stars line up and I can get out, I may go one more time and do a victory lap. Is <laughs> it goodbye for good? Because so, I don't care if I ever go back there again, really. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I, I can't wait. The the day that I leave the industry will be the well, – I will never go back to Vegas Sarah, you're never ever gonna again. Leave. You're never going to leave the industry. <laughs> I know. Unfortunately, I'm probably going to die with this shirt on. <laughs> but, uh, well, that'll smell nice. <laughs> Yeah. All right, Pete. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. And you, uh, congratulations. You're quite, you're quite welcome. Your and, uh, thank, this weekend. Yeah. Thanks for letting me participate. Thank you. And everyone, thanks for watching. It's been a special edition of my Rants Raves video cast with uh, Pete Putman, who uh, you know did a lot of stuff, as you can see in this industry. And of course, uh, we'll link all the things we talked about here in the in the body of this uh, video cast. You can go down right below and click on it. So thanks for joining me, everyone. Have a great day. Rave Radio. With rants and raves, you'll be all.